0: Good morning, I invite you to turn to the book of Genesis, I'm going to ask you to follow along with me in various uh, readings of scripture this morning, and to begin with, I'm going to read some verses from the book of Genesis, uh, beginning in chapter 13, verse 13, and then I'll tell you where to go next. preached Genesis uh, chapter 19 uh, verses 1 through 29 about seven weeks ago and I'm not up here to re-preach that sermon but I want want the background of what was happening in Sodom to be fresh in your mind because that's going to be the platform on which the rest of the sermon is built. So Holy Scripture says, beginning in Genesis 13, verse 13, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And then turn to chapter 18. Chapter 18, verses 20 and 21. Then the Lord said, speaking to Abraham, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And then go over to chapter 19, verses 1 through 26. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. All the people to the last man surrounded the house and they called to Lot where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance shut the door after him and said I beg you my brothers do not act so wickedly. Behold I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said stand back. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, "'Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, "'and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. "'But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. "'Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. "'Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved.' "'He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, "'that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. "'Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there.' Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. This is the word of God and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see what you have revealed in Holy Scripture that we might understand the ways of the Lord and your calling upon our lives. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would so move in our hearts and transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm, I'm not here this morning to beat up on Sodom or to beat up on the world. I am here because God in His goodness has given us Sodom as an example for our spiritual instruction and for the transformation of our lives. And I, I, didn't, I didn't want to skip over this. Uh, because it would be easy to go right on to the next chapter in Genesis chapter 20. But the reality is, is that in addition to the many references to Sodom in the book of Genesis, there are many other references throughout the Old and New Testament. And I want us to understand how Sodom is an example and a point of comparison that the Lord makes throughout the Bible in order to instruct us and to make us diligent in our walk with him. And so let's, let's, let's get right into it. Uh, the first thing I want you to see is that the Lord's judgment on Sodom serves as a pattern for future judgments, and it also serves as a preview for the final judgment. The logic is simple. If other nations follow Sodom's example of sinning then they will receive the same kind of punishment that Sodom received in Deuteronomy chapter 29 there's going to be a few passages I'm going to ask you to turn to but I'll I'll tell you that when I get there otherwise you're going to be flipping all around again so I'll let you know Um, in Deuteronomy 29 16 to 28 Israel is warned that if it turns away from the Lord then its land will be burned out quote, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath, Deuteronomy 29:23. At one point in, in its history, Israel experienced a partial judgment that was compared with the judgment on Sodom. I overthrew some of you, As when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord, Amos 4.11. Isaiah chapter 13 pronounces judgment against Babylon. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. Isaiah 13:19. Yeah. Jeremiah chapter 49 pronounces judgment against Edom. Edom shall become a horror. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all its disasters. As when Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring cities were overthrown, says the Lord, no man shall dwell there, no man shall sojourn in her. Jeremiah 49, verses 17 and 18. Zephaniah chapter 2 pronounces judgment against the Moabites and the Ammonites. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever, Zephaniah 2.9. Jesus gave a warning that towns, which reject the message of the kingdom that he brings and that his messengers bring. Those towns will fare worse than Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment. Matthew chapter 10 says, Jesus says, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, he's speaking to his appointed representatives, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Matthew chapter 10 verses 14 and 15. And then in the next chapter, Matthew 11, it says this, Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And Jesus said, and you, Capernaum, remember he spent a lot of time in Capernaum, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Matthew 11, verses 20 and verses 23 and 24. Let that sink in the character of some of the unrepentant cities that Jesus visited and graciously ministered to in the first century were more spiritually corrupt than Sodom. And one of the implications of what Jesus taught in Matthew chapters 10 and 11 is that the judgment upon Sodom in Genesis chapter 19 was not the last judgment that Sodom will face. The judgment upon Sodom in Genesis chapter 19 is one example of a temporal judgment, an instance when God decides to enact judgment upon a person or a place or a people group in the here and now of this present world. But every people group will appear before the Lord on an appointed day of final judgment. And the Lord will judge the world, every people group and every individual according to his righteous standard. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil, Ecclesiastes 12, 14. God will judge the secrets of men, Romans 2, 16. The Lord will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. The totality of all that you have done and failed to do. And the totality of all your motivations for what you have done and not done will reveal your character such as it actually was. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation twenty fifteen. So that the destruction of Sodom ultimately serves as a preview of eternal destruction, which is what Jude teaches in his Short little letter, verses 6 and 7. He wrote, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Jude, verses 6 and 7. As we are gathered here on this Lord's Day morning, we do so on the edge of eternity. Eternal fire need not overtake you on the great day of judgment. The fire that consumed Sodom need not anticipate fire consuming you. But if you would be spared Sodom-like ruin, then you must steer clear of Sodom-like rebellion. And so now, for the meat of the sermon, I want us to turn our attention to Sodom as a pattern of sin. So this is the second part of the message that Sodom gives us a a pattern of sin's growth. I better get something to drink. Sodom gives us a pattern of sin's growth among people. Sin is exactly what we do not want to grow, right? We want sin to be rejected, starved, and put to death. But when sin is left unchecked, it grows, and its external manifestations go from bad to worse. This is true at the individual level, at the familial and societal level, And also at the intergenerational level, unless God's grace moderates or holds back the power and trajectory of sin, sin turns people and cultures and future generations into bastions of increasing ugliness and moral chaos. How in the world do you end up in a situation where all the men of Sodom are surrounding one man's house because they want to rape his guests? How do you end up there? Is Sodom just an atypical blip on the radar screen of a sane world? No, it is not. Sodom might as, just as well be Israel. And Genesis chapter 19 might as well just be Judges chapter 19. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah. Judges 19 verse 1. We'll just leave the concubine part out of this. But it reads like Genesis 19. You know what happened? This Levite and his concubine made their way to the town of Gibeah in the land allotted to the tribe of Benjamin. An old man showed kindness to the Levite and his concubine, and he welcomed them into his house. Sound familiar? Lots hospitality to the two angels. The evening of hospitality began pleasantly enough, and they washed their feet and ate and drank, Judges 19.21, and they were making their hearts merry, Judges 19.22, but then the spirit of the whoredom of Sodom was seen to be in Israel. The men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. Judges 19, 22. You can read on it. It just reads almost exactly like what happened in Genesis chapter 19. And the, the degree of rebellion in Benjamin, one of the tribes of Israel, almost led to their complete annihilation. You can read about that in Judges 19, chapters 19 to 21. The similarity between the sinfulness of Sodom in Genesis 19 and the sinfulness of Benjamin in Judges 19 is striking, but it is not the only passage that reflects the scriptural reality that Sodom is a prototypical sin city. In Isaiah chapter 1, the Lord rebukes Judah, the southern kingdom. Do you know how the Lord refers to the people of Judah? This is how. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah, Isaiah 1.10. In other words, Judah's leaders are the spiritual equal of Sodom's rulers. And Judah's people are the spiritual equal of Gomorrah, which was destroyed in the same judgment that destroyed Sodom. God's covenant people were as pagan as the worst pagans. They proclaim their sin like Sodom, Isaiah 3.9. Further, Judah's prophets paved the way for the nation's descent into Sodom-like corruption. Jeremiah 23.14 says, But in the prophets of Jerusalem I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. If you want to be a preacher who is popular with sin-coddling people, do not proclaim the necessity of repenting and turning away from evil. Lie to people by telling them that God promises Peace to unrepentant people, just like the unrepentant preacher. This approach to ministry is very effective at spreading godliness throughout the land. In the prophet Ezekiel, we hear the astonishing assessment that Judah actually out-sinned Sodom. You understand that? Not only did you walk in the ways of Samaria and Sodom, and do according to their abominations. Within a very little time, you were more corrupt than they in all your ways. Ezekiel 16, verse 47. Friends, fasten your seatbelts. It may well be the case that nations that throw away their godly heritage end up more corrupt than the pagans that never had as good a heritage in the first place. How did Sodom and Benjamin end up in the moral cesspool described in Genesis 19 and Judges 19? How did Judah end up equal to and worse than Sodom? How did Judah end up building the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hanam to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech? Jeremiah 32, 35. How did they end up sanctioning child sacrifices? How did our country end up like Judah and Sodom? How did our country end up thinking that aborting, drugging, and mutilating children and robbing them of their experiential innocence is a good idea that ought to be defended in the courts? How did we end up there? How did our country get to the point where public libraries are promoting filth? How did our country end up in complete moral chaos? Now, I've addressed this question before by walking through Romans 1. I'm not going to do that in great detail. I do want to summarize it, but then I want to go to the Old Testament because I want you to see how the Old Testament teaches us how to understand the world and how it devolves into increasing sin. So here's a brief summary of Romans 1. By the way, I hope this sermon today encourages you to dig more deeply into the scriptures for yourselves and looking at some of these passages and how they relate to each other. But In Romans chapter 1, verses uh, 18 to 32, all of humanity's problems begin with ingratitude toward God and the refusal to honor God and acknowledge our indebtedness to Him, Romans 1, 18 to 23. This means that our most fundamental problem is irreverence and impiety. We turn away from God. we We become infatuated with created things, including ourselves, Created things are good, of course, but they are not divine. But when we put created things in God's place, we essentially turn those created things into idols or God substitutes. And from that critical turning away, when humanity exchanges the truth of God uh, and the glory of God for the glory of idols, God turns us over to increasing levels of judgment. First, God gives idolatrous humanity over to impurity, which includes heterosexual sexual immorality, Romans 1 verses 24 and 25. Second, God gives idolatrous humanity over to dishonorable passions, specifically homosexual desires, Romans 1 verses 26 and 27. Third, God gives idolatrous humanity over to a debatant. Based mind that expresses itself in a relentless array of rebellion and strife. Romans 1:28 to 31. The simple refusal to honor God and give thanks to Him, Romans 1:21, if not corrected through repentance, inevitably leads to sexual, moral, relational, and cultural chaos. Romans 1:24-31. This is how Sodom, Judah, and America end up where they end up. They were irreverent and they refused to repent of their irreverence. They refused to learn the fear of the Lord. And for such people, yesterday's mischief is never enough. Fault gods like Baal and Moloch and their Prophets of social engineering are always demanding higher levels of frenzied devotion. And wayward people are all too eager to oblige. Now the logic of Romans chapter 1 can be seen in two Old Testament passages and I want you to turn there. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. While you're turning there perhaps you might recall the context. In Deuteronomy chapter 8 the children of israel are on the cusp of entering the promised land the lord had led them in the wilderness for the previous 40 years in order to teach them the principle of humble dependence spiritual health is characterized by humbly depending on the lord by humbly depending on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord Deuteronomy 8:83 humble dependence means humbly receiving all that the Lord provides and humbly obeying all that the Lord commands with their 40 year wilderness training program coming to an end they were about to enter the promised land which Deuteronomy chapter 8 calls look at it Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 7 a good land a land of brooks of water of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. How is Israel supposed to receive this gracious gift from the Lord? By enjoying the gift, And thanking the giver next verse verse 10 and you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you what was the temptation that Israel would face to forget the Lord in the midst of their prosperity look how the passage continues take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today Lest, when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. The great sin envisioned in Deuteronomy chapter 8 is to mishandle the blessings that the Lord puts into your lap. He gives you bountiful resources and the capacity to turn the baseline resources into increasing wealth. He tells you to keep your eyes on him, walk in his ways, honor him with your wealth, enjoy the bounty. The great sin is to forget God. To become infatuated with all the stuff and to become self-congratulatory and self-sufficient. The great sin is for the heart to become proud and lifted up and to forget God. Once that fatal step is taken, the door is open to untold evil. If you forget the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 8:19, it is inevitable that you will go after other gods and serve them and worship them, and as it turns out, these other gods will make shocking demands upon you. In Romans chapter 1, mankind mishandled its blessings. They had received the knowledge of God along with a beautiful world that reverberated with the glory of God, but their heart was lifted up. They forgot to honor God, and they became infatuated with all the stuff. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, Eve mishandled their blessings. Instead of resting in all the bounty that God had provided and walking in fellowship with the Lord, they exchanged the promise of life for the lie that they could become their own autonomous little gods. It's not surprising, therefore, to learn that that is exactly the same trap that Sodom fell into. Sodom's problems did not begin with the attempted homosexual gang rape rape of Genesis 19. That's where they ended up. But where did their problems begin? Well, turn to Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16 after Isaiah, after Jeremiah, after Lamentations, a big 48-chapter book of Ezekiel. It tells us, it gives us insight into when and how Sodom began to go off the rails. Okay, after telling Judah that Judah's sin was worse than Sodom's sin... In Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 46 to 48, Ezekiel then goes ahead and identifies Sodom's sin. It's really important that you understand Ezekiel 16 and put it alongside Genesis 19. Look at Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Sodom's problems began where all humanity's problems begin, with pride, with the disposition to exalt ourselves and forget God. And notice that Sodom's pride is something that was ramped up in the midst of their prosperity, The three-pronged expression is that Sodom and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease. They had material abundance. They had multiplied wealth. They had leisure time. It was not wrong for them to enjoy their abundance. As Paul writes to Timothy, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. 1 Timothy 6.17 And as the Lord instructed Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Sodom should have enjoyed their abundance and honored the Lord who gave it to them and when you honor the lord who gives the abundance you don't get proud and materialistic and selfish after telling timothy that god richly provides us with everything to enjoy paul immediately said that the recipients of such bountiful provision are to do good to be rich in good works to be generous and ready to share first timothy 6:18 but that is exactly what sodom didn't do Sodom was sitting proudly on an abundance of provisions and she was smug and self-satisfied and indifferent to her poor neighbors. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Instead of being humble conduits of God's generosity to other people, they became self-absorbed, self-impressed, self-reliant, self-enclosed people who are stuck on themselves and their own own little reinforcing bubble of selfish, materialistic pride. And once you are stuck in the way of selfish, materialistic pride, the door is open to a cesspool of immoral conduct. This shocking immoral conduct might take the shape that it took in Nazi Germany. Or it might take the shape that it took in Sodom. And you can try to fool yourself into thinking that there is a massive leap from basic ingratitude and selfishness to extreme moral ugliness, but you would be wrong. C.S. Lewis said, rightly, that pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. And once you have an anti-God state of mind, and once you have put a pseudo-God in God's place, and a pseudo-law in the place of God's law, you will, given enough time, you will run the table on disobedience. People who disregard the first of the Ten Commandments, and the first one is the big one, people who disregard the first commandment have in principle opened the door to routine violations of all the other nine. In due course, Sodom's smug self-satisfaction became unhinged and unrestrained sexual misconduct. Some people might wish to protest that people can forget God and still act with moral decency. Well, at the individual level, viewed over a short period of time? Sure, you, 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 can, you can internally be irreverent towards God and externally be a decent neighbor. The outward decency, however, is not pleasing to God and it has no value pertaining to salvation. When the heartbeat of true faith and love for God are lacking, the fleshly, the fleshly attempt to act morally and uprightly is a sham. But my concern at the moment isn't so much on what individuals can pull off in their own flesh, it's just the trajectory of sin in societies and generations. Uh, over time, things devolve further and further. Once you start down the path of irreverence and pride and ingratitude, you open the door to what Paul talks about, in inventing evil and giving it more external manifestations to put your ungodliness into practice. Societies cannot abide in goodness unless they abide in God. As for Sodom, eventually, the Lord said, they were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them When I saw it. When we put Genesis 3, Deuteronomy 8, Ezekiel 16, and Genesis 19, and Romans 1 together, I do not wonder why America is in the mess she is in. As a society, over the course of recent generations, we have grossly mishandled our blessings. The Lord poured out upon our country an astonishing measure of blessing, the blessings of liberty and the blessings of material wealth. But we mishandled it. We credited ourselves. We thought we could hang on to the blessings and forget God. Irreverence crept in. Instead of blessing the Lord for all that he gave to us, and instead of honoring him by keeping his instructions, we forgot the Lord in the midst of our prosperity. And whenever a society gets proud of itself and preoccupied with all the stuff that we have, God and his glory, his truth, and his law are forgotten. And then the secular gods beckon the discontent and ungrateful people to chase after an ever-increasing litany of moral distortions and sexual perversions. Let this sobering account of how sin grows among a people over time not only give you insight into America's downward moral trajectory, but let it also serve as a reality check on your own life and your own household. As Casting Crowns sings in their song, Slow Fade, people never crumble in a day. Daddies never crumble in a day. Families never crumble in a day. And this observation is correct. And when the crumbling happens, if you trace it back far enough past all the sorry excuses and bad habits and life stresses and practical compromises, what you will find is that at some point, the eyes of the heart, lost sight of God. And things began to go downhill from there. Finally, I want to show you one specific New Testament passage, Luke chapter 17. And this passage shows us that the ruin of Sodom functions as a sober warning to us. And this sober warning is not designed to leave you in a state of paralyzing fear, but perhaps some of you will have to go through a process of paralyzing fear before you come to a place of rest in the Lord. Luke chapter 17 verses 20 to 37 looks forward to the day when the Son of Man comes in glory and judges the world. The title Son of Man was Jesus's favorite way of referring to himself. Look at verses 26 to 30, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. The judgment upon the ancient world in Noah's day and the judgment upon Sodom and Lot's day destroyed everyone except for Noah and Lot and a handful of their family members. Up until the moment of destruction, the residents of Sodom were giving themselves to ordinary life. The kitchen and the dining room, eating and drinking. The marketplace and the exchange of goods and services, buying and selling in the fields and gardens and home improvement projects and city infrastructure, planting and building. Their life was anchored in this world. Now, as we have seen, the problem was not that they lived in the world, and the problem wasn't that they had stuff. The problem was that they lived in the world with their stuff without without humbly acknowledging that they owed everything to the Lord. Every breath and every heartbeat and every home-cooked meal and every family gathering and every bountiful harvest and every friendship and every form of fruitful labor and every good plan for the future. They owed gratitude to the Lord for all the prosperity that He had graciously given to them, but they withheld it. They withheld their gratitude They turned in on themselves. They refused to show hospitality to the Lord of glory. And so when the Lord of glory came, he came as judge. And the fire destroyed them all. When Jesus says that the flood judgment of Genesis 7 and the fire judgment of Genesis 19 destroyed them all, he is obviously not including Noah who entered the ark and Lot who went out of Sodom. Noah and Lot have this testimony that they were righteous. The Lord knows how to preserve his righteous ones from the moral corruptions of the world. And he knows how to safeguard his righteous one when he enacts judgment upon the unrighteous. And the question that Jesus presses on us in Luke 17 is this. When the Son of Man comes, will you be ready to leave this present world and be gathered to your Lord? Will you be ready like Noah and Lot? Or will you be so attached to the worldliness of the world that you can't imagine leaving it, which means that you will be destroyed when the Son of Man returns to judge the world? Let's, let's continue on in the passage. Luke 17, verse 31. On that day, the day when the Son of Man is revealed, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. You see, if the high king of heaven is your treasure, then when he comes, you won't be preoccupied with your lesser treasures back in the house. If you know that your true and highest good is found in knowing him, do you know that? Is that real to you? That your true and highest good is found in knowing him? If you know that your true and highest good is found in knowing him, then you are ready at a moment's notice to bid farewell to everything else and to be ushered into his glorious presence. But if the treasures of your heart are bound up with all the stuff back in the farmhouse, back in the business office, back in the bank, then you will turn back in order to get them, or at least attempt to turn back. No man wants to be separated from that which he holds most dear. All men are to be pitied who don't hold the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom of grace most dear. To give us an example of someone who turned back, Jesus refers to Lot's wife in the next verse, verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. That's a command. Remember Lot's wife. Like Lot, she left Sodom, but she turned back. Like the person who's unwilling to leave his stuff that is stored away back in the house, so Lot's wife was unwilling to leave her stuff that was stored away back in her house. She was unwilling to leave behind the life that she had in Sodom. Her life was bound up with the here and now of this present world, and she wanted to preserve the life that she knew in Sodom. Therefore, she looked back to gaze upon her heart's treasure back in the destroyed city. And thus she deserved to share in Sodom's destruction, and indeed she did. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Genesis 19, 26. You see, there are two ways, and there are two corresponding outcomes. God, in His goodness, wants you to understand why the world is the way it is, and He wants you to know Him. He wants you to turn away from the value system of this present world, and He wants you to seek first His kingdom. You see, look at verses, uh, still in Luke 17, look at verse 33 and following. There's two ways and two outcomes. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, when the Son of Man comes, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there." the vultures will gather. Note well, the problem isn't grinding at the mill or eating and drinking or getting married or buying and selling or planting and building. That's not the problem. Both righteous and unrighteous people are involved in those activities. It's what it means to be alive on planet earth. The great divide concerns the treasures and motivations of the heart as you are going about those things. There is a kind of heart that prioritizes the pursuit and preservation of your life and comfort and pleasure and wealth and respectability in the here and now of this present world. This pursuit and preservation is characterized by selfish, materialistic pride, which I talked about earlier. This kind of person stores up his treasure on earth and this way leads to catastrophic loss and judgment. Jesus said, "Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, and the vultures will be seen circling over the ruins." But there's another way. And you ought to ask yourself right now. You really ought to ask yourself if what I'm about to say describes you, at least in seed form, that it's really taking root and beginning to grow and manifest itself in your life, because this is where it's at, folks. There is a kind of heart that holds loosely to the things of this world. You are glad to be a humbly dependent steward of the good things that God puts into your lap. You bless the Lord for the good things that you have, but the good things don't have you The Lord has your heart. He created you. He upholds you by his own sovereign will. He purchased you with his very own blood. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your embodied life. He leads you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He alone gives you the power to get wealth. He gives and takes away as he sees fit. And you bless him for it. You know how to handle prosperity. And you know how to handle poverty because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Whether you have much or little, you you utilize what you have in order to demonstrate your love for the Lord and for other people. You gladly lose your life for Jesus' sake and for the gospel's sake and for the sake of other people that they also might be saved. You endure suffering in order to bring the message of salvation to a world under judgment. Unlike the people in Noah's day, and Lot's day, who were busy at their tasks, but clueless about the coming judgment. You are not clueless. You are attuned to the Lord, and this shapes your life. You trust in Jesus every step of the way, and the revelation of the glory of Jesus on that final day will not come to you as an interruption in the course of your life. It will rather come to you as the appointed and glorious completion of the course of your life. And then you shall always be with the Lord. And so you long for that day to come. Whosoever loses his life will keep it and his joy shall never end. Let's pray. Father, whether whether or not you grant a gracious spiritual awakening to our morally corrupt land, I pray for those of us who are gathered here this morning or listening online, this church family, and our friends who have visited us today, I pray that we would be found in Christ. That we'd be able to say, All I have is Christ. All I want is Christ. He's my all in all. All of my good comes from Him. I am His and He is mine. Father, I pray that that this message would not just be information. I pray that it would live in our hearts. That we would be Your holy people transformed by your Spirit, walking in your ways, laying up treasure in heaven, pointing to this perishing world, pointing to the fact that there is a Savior. There is something better. There is a promised kingdom. Join us on the way. Father, I pray that you would do a mighty work in and through this church family. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.